0: Yeah, hi. We're trying to reach uh, Doug Mench. That's me. Yeah, hi. This is uh, Adam Bernstein from uh, Grown-Ass Men. Hi, how are you?
1: How grown is your ass?
0: Very grown.
1: Okay. There are men
2: who don't know that Aquaman's full name is Arthur Curry, or that the Submariner's full name is Namor McKenzie. There are men who are proud not to even care. And then there's Adam Bernstein and Doug Bost. Two men who should have better things to do, but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men.
0: Grown-ass men.
2: With special guest grown-ass man, Doug Mench. Doug Mench. When Adam and I were reading our first comics in the 70s, his name was on every good comic title out there. He wrote Fantastic Four. He wrote Thor. He wrote Hulk. He created Moon Knight. He wrote a lot of Batman. He wrote the stories that were turned into your favorite Batman movies. And uh, with a certain other grown-ass man who we interviewed two episodes ago, Paul Gillesi, uh Doug Mensch made Master Kung Fu one of the coolest comic titles out there. So this week we are lucky enough to talk with Doug about all that and also about his experience of working in comics at an incredible time, the late 60s, all through the 70s.
0: And we're also going to hear about what happened when Doug Mensch met the Who.
2: I'm, I have so many questions for you just looking at all the you know the stuff that you've worked on over the years. It's really incredible.
1: Yep, it sure is. (laughs) It's paying off now.
2: Is it? It feels like it's paying off finally?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I co-created Bane for Batman. And uh, man, oh man, there were Bane SpaghettiOs, believe it or not. Uh, Limited edition Batman SpaghettiOs. So all of a sudden... I get all this money from Campbell's Soup, you know, I mean...
0: <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. Who
1: would have expected that, right? And even Marvel is paying me for, uh, you know, Moon Knight action figures and stuff like that. It's it's nice to goof yeah. off. Nice to goof off, you know?
0: I originally wanted to get in touch with you because, I, you know, we were doing a show on uh, Master of Kung Fu. We love those issues from the 70s. And Actually, we hear that uh, there might be, uh, the Master of Kung Fu might be settled with the Sax Romer people, and they're going to be actually putting that old stuff out. Is that true?
1: Well, as of the email I just got, it's, uh, it's not a question of might. It is. They're doing it. They want me to write introductions, and uh, I believe there's going to be... F- Four gigantic volumes and a fifth volume of The Black and White Deadly Hands of Kung Fu.
0: Yeah, is, uh, is Moon Knight uh, series going to be produced by Netflix? I'm reading that.
1: Well, I got an email about that too, but it was not from uh, Marvel. They're supposed to call me soon and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask them about that. But I did get an email from someone. It's somewhat more than a rumor, whatever that means. But this wouldn't be the first time. I mean, they they have had uh, Moon Knight TV series in the works at least two times before that fell through. To this day, people swear that Moon Knight was a TV series in Japan, and I've never been able to verify it. Uh, but I do remember going into Marvel one day and Stan Lee was in John Reporton's office with uh, like three Japanese businessmen <laughs> and he's, and Stan sees me and he says what is it with you in this moon night? And I go, what's what's the matter, Stan? He says, "Uh, these three gentlemen have come all the way from Japan. I'm trying to sell them Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and the Hulk, and all they want is moon Knight. moon knight That's all they talk about.
0: Were you um, working out of New York? Were you in what they called the Marvel bullpen? Did you, like, hang out there?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just... I was I was happy in Chicago, you know, <laughs> doing my own thing. And then and I got a uh, a contract from A. S. Barnes and Company uh for this huge coffee table book I had proposed to them called the Encyclopedia of Horror in uh books, movies, radio, comic books, you know, I mean everything. It would have been a massive undertaking. And they accepted the idea and sent the contract and I was all set to sign it and the telephone rang and it was Marv Wolfman saying, I'm in Roy Thomas's office and Roy said, listen, we want you to come work for Marvel. And I said, ah, oh, geez, I just got this contract for a book. I just met this girl. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Writing these articles for the Chicago Sun Times, and one was just nominated for a Chicago Newspaper Guild Award. Everything's going great for me here. Right, right, right. I didn't even realize how arrogant or cocky this was, but I said, Well, how about I come and try you out for two weeks? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And Roy, he went silent for a second, and then he said, uh, Okay, all right, come on. So I told the girl and she said, well, look, how about if I come with you to New York and if it works fine and if not, I'll just come back to Chicago and there's no hard feelings. And I said, well, if you're willing to do that, that's to solve everything, you know? So she did and we've now been married for about 40 some years, you know?
0: Wow, how about that?
1: Isn't that great? Anyway, I was hired initially to be an assistant editor in the bullpen. And I remember after about, I don't know, two, three months of doing that, I got the word, Roy wants to see you in his office. And I go, oh, what did I do now, you know? So I go into Roy's office and he says, "Uh, look, we, uh, we need more writing from you. And I said, what? I'm working here 40 hours a week at least. And then at night and on the weekends, I'm already doing more writing than any of your other writers. Right. Well, we need more writing from you, and um, your writing is more valuable than you know. And I said, well, if you need if you need more writing from me, I'm going to have to stay home. I can't do this proofreading. And yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, just stay another week and train your replacement, and then stay at home. And that's when. You know, it went way beyond the black and white magazines Werewolf by Night and Master of Kung Fu and Man Wolf and Frankenstein, you know, all these color comics, too.
2: Right. So when you went to, when you just decided to, you know, stay home and and do the writing, was it still in in New York?
1: Yeah, it turned out I didn't have to move to New York at all. (laughs) At that time, there was a big deal about if you wanted to work for Marvel, you had to live in New York. They wanted you to come into the office every so often. That that whole bullpen thing was real. Right. It, it really was the Mary Marvel bullpen, and everybody loved each other, and, you know, it was one big happy family. This was before Jim Shooter came along and ruined everything. Here I am, this guy with hair down to his ass, right? All of a sudden, I'm friends with these 50-year-old guys who normally probably would have chucked bricks at me. Gil Kane and all. I, these were my idols, and... In a normal situation, they would have thought I was a creepy weirdo, but at, in the Mary Marvel bullpen, we became best buddies. You know, it was great.
0: So how did a Master of Kung Fu come your way? I'm pretty
1: sure that, see, Steve Englehart, I think, wrote the first three issues. Yeah, that's true. I thought it was a really cool book, and I think Roy had heard me say that uh, in the office, and maybe that's why he offered it to me knew I liked it. But I realized that as much as I liked those first three issues, it was a dead end. Um, and maybe Engelhart knew that too. The, and by dead end, what I mean is you have this uh, this pacifist who's the best fighter on earth and he has to fight all the time, but he hates fighting. Right. So the only way that can work is if you have these sci-fan assassins. You know, drop off of rooftops and pop up out of the sewers. You know, to attack them all the time. And for three issues, that was fine. But you, you know, after I did a couple more issues, I thought, man, this can't go on forever. This is. That's when I, I said, wow, well, I got to rethink this whole thing and uh, come up with some plausible reason for him to engage in the kind of activity in which him fighting Kung Fu makes sense. And that's when I came up with the MI6 idea. Once he agreed to help Nayland Smith and Lyca Wu and Reston and that crowd, there were plausible reasons for him to be getting into trouble and fighting all the time, you know. But
2: you really took that book in an interesting direction. I mean, you really took what was already there and just, you know, made it work much better. Because it had Reston and all those characters right from the start, right? It just didn't have... No, no, no. No,
1: No, I came up with Reston and Lego Wu. It had Nayland Smith. That's from the Sax Romer, uh, Manchu books. Right but I was the one who made him part of MI6.
0: Well, those issues that you did with Paul Galasi, I think, especially for The Times, are some of the most sophisticated, best books that I had read. I mean, we were both starting to read comics in the mid-70s, and those always stood out for me, and when we were, you know, talking with Paul, we were talking about how great those books were, but something quite honestly happens when he's not doing the book, you know, at least from issue, like, 19 to 50, which I guess is his basic run. It seems to me, I mean, just honestly, not as good. Was that hard to, like, have artists switching all the time?
1: Well, sure, it always is. Um, And... I don't know if I agree with that. I'll, you know, Paul is like my favorite collaborator, no doubt about that. But I think some of the Zek stuff and some of the Gene Day stuff is actually better writing, better stories mm-hmm. than what I did with Paul. Now, you may prefer Paul's art. I mean, there, there's that's not out of the realm of possibility. But I really think, even though it became a very different Feel with the Mike Zeck stuff because he's a he's a straightforward storyteller. I think he's a very good storyteller. Yeah, but yeah, I always, sure. I always use the analogy of you know like Galassi is Orson Welles and Mike Zeck was John Ford. You know, with, with Galassi, you had and I I incorporated this in my writing. You know, you had that sequential storytelling, that very tricky. Uh, Gimmicky, but not in the bad sense of gimmicky, creative storytelling, uh, Franco, Eisner, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And with Zeck, it was the very straightforward John Ford, Howard Hawks kind of storytelling where you always know where you are. You always know what's going on at a glance. I mean, you can follow it perfectly, but there's, there isn't any of that extra uh, embellishment that an Orson Welles would do. And Gene Day was just, uh, he, he was the most uh, enthusiastic collaborator of all of them. Um, he just loved it. And man, that was a shock when he died. Jeez. That was t-
2: it, it. really unexpected, right? He was... Oh, yeah.
1: He was in his 30s. He was I, I don't think he was much more than 30.
2: When we were talking with Paul, he really, he, you know, he said wonderful things about um, working with you and the collaboration with you, and one of the things that he was talking about on Master Kung Fu was that it felt almost like a, a competitive sometimes, that you would like try to top each other with stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we used to we used to argue about who was John Lennon and who was Paul McCartney, you know, <laughs> it was that kind of thing. I'm surprised he said it was wonderful working with me, because all he ever gave me was grief. <laughs> we, had, we had huge battles, huge battles all the time. And he, uh, he kept accusing me of destroying his back. I said, what did I, What are you talking about? What did I do? i got to sit here 16 hours hunched over the drawing board. You're killing my back. I said, that's not me. That's th- the nature of comic book deadlines. You know, they come out once a month. What do you want from me? And uh, after he, he finally did quit, I think after a couple of years, we became better friends than ever because we didn't have to fight about the work, you know? Sure. And, and, we, and we did work again, but it was not on a monthly grind, so it wasn't such a bad uh, relationship. It was.
2: I was just reading this week six from <laughs> Sirius that I'd never read before. It's no, beautiful. Really? I, I, it's great.
1: Yeah. He called me up not long ago or sent me an email, I forget, and he said that he had just read it maybe for the first time other than reading it while he was working on it. And he said, uh, he said he cried at the end. And I went, wow.
0: I want to switch gears a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in, like, because we're grown-ass men. <laughs> we do a lot of things where we look back at how comics were for us when we were kids. Yep. Where are you from? And, like, what were you reading? Where did you go, like... To, did you read comic books and yeah, yeah, where yeah. did you buy them? You know, what was the yeah. store like? I'm from
1: Chicago. Uh-huh. And Chicago, like, uh, probably like the closest analogy would be probably Brooklyn or Cleveland or someplace like that. They had these uh, corner stores, these uh, the mom and pop stores where... I mean, there were several of them. There'd be a counter where you'd go in and get a Coke and French fries and squirt a half a ton of ketchup on the French fries and a magazine rack and a comic book rack, and they sold aspirin and, you know. Right. Sundries, I guess you would call it. And these were great places, right? Yeah. Penny candy, that kind of stuff. I The, the earliest stuff I remember was is probably... Um, Carl Barks' Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck comics. Mm. And I remember Atomic Mouse. And then I had an aunt from Scotland who would always bring me the latest issue of Tomahawk. And I was very confused that all the horses were blue. <laughs> no, they, would, they, would, they were supposed to be black horses, but... Right. The colorist was, well, all I could do is put dark blue on this, and Turok, Son of Stone, that was another early one. Cole
0: mentioned that one, too.
1: Then I decided I was, I don't know, 11 and too old for comics. So I just stopped buying. I mean, I I was buying and shoplifting tons of comics. (laughs) Uh, Right. (laughs) I mean, tons of them. And uh, just about everything I could get my hands on. I just went cold turkey and after about two or three months of uh, not reading any comics now I'm grown up and girls and all of that I remember going into one of these corner stores and getting my coke and my french fries and my half ton of ketchup and I'm sitting there eating the french fries and drinking the coke and and I spin in the stool and I see the comic book rack and I don't care anymore. But then something catches me out of the corner of my eye, right? And it was this, this logo that I was not familiar with. And the words in the logo seemed to suggest a, um, a serious like science fiction or superhero type book. But the style of the logo looked like it was for a humor book. Mm hmm. And it was Fantastic Four. And I thought, what a weird logo. It's like, is this going to be, you know, like a funny comic? But why would a funny comic be called Fantastic Four? You know, right. So I went over and picked it up and leafed through it while I was having my French fries and Coke. And Jack Kirby hit me right between the eyes and that was the end of cold turkey it was fantastic four number one wow, Right? wow that's and, awesome yeah so i got re-addicted in a whole new way uh right at the very beginning of marvel comics wow
0: so when you like you were reading batman as a kid you're reading when you actually started to write batman did you like was part of you going holy crap i'm writing batman
1: well yeah i mean but that had already happened a hundred times with you know, I mean, right with the Hulk or whatever. Right? Sure, sure, sure. I'm in Fantastic Four. I, I, I wrote Fantastic Four for a year. You know, I mean, who, who would have believed that? <laughs> Thor, you know. Right. Uh, I never dreamed any of this would happen. I, like I said, I had to be talked into going to New York to do
0: right, it. Right, right, right.
1: Crazy things would happen. I mean, Steve Ditko was this guy who was thought of as a. You know, the one uh, uh, dark figure in the Marvel bullpen who had quit Marvel but now was coming back and doing a few things now and then. And you know, right. everybody was afraid of Steve Ditko. And I go, well, why? And, well, you'll find out you're doing the Hulk annual with him. And I go, I am? Oh, boy, I get to work with Steve Ditko. <laughs> and, you know... And then I, I go up to the office one day, and someone nudges me and says, uh, hey, that's Dick Coe right there. And I go, really? Okay. So because everybody was so afraid of him, I didn't say anything. Uh, but he overheard me talking with someone else, and he comes up, and he goes, you're Doug Moink, you know? I go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he says, well, I want you to know that all the, the, these writers up here, are, they, they're shit. But this, this Hulk annual you did, that's that's not bad. I wanted you to know that. That's not bad. All these other guys, they, they
0: <laughs> That's
1: great. Wow. <laughs> so I got a compliment from Steve Ditko, but it wasn't exactly the nicest compliment. Well, that's maybe the best you could get out of him. And just, and just talking to, the one time I got to talk to Jack Kirby for a long time and hear his stories about World War II and you know, uh, losing the box of cigars and being pinned down by Nazi s- sniper fire. And, God damn it, I just had to go out and get that box of cigars. You know? <laughs> I mean, it, it, I couldn't believe I'm, I'm getting drunk with Jack Kirby and hearing this stuff. This is great.
0: Right. I mean, you know, it just seems like a lot of the guys were bitter, almost in connection well, to some of the things that you were well, saying you about bl- the royalties and all yeah, that, you know?
1: You can't blame them. You can't blame them. And that's why I'll toot my own horn a little bit here. Uh, Somehow, after I made the permanent move, after the two-week tryout, I went back to Chicago and got a moving van and moved all my, my modest furniture to Manhattan, you know. And now I got this great apartment on Riverside Drive, and I'm in the mighty Marvel bullpen, and look, there's my idol, and there's my other idol, and I can't believe this, you know, and Stan Lee, holy smokes. And all of a sudden, I got swept up on the sidewalk outside the Marvel offices. And they said, come on, you're going to this meeting. And what meeting? Uh, it's ACBA. What's ACBA? Oh, it's the Academy of Comic Book Arts. I go, okay. So I, I go to this thing. And I'm thinking, wow, look at everybody here. Now there's people from D.C. too, you know.
0: Right.
1: And uh, make the long story short, somehow, I don't even remember how. But at the end of the meeting, I'm the vice president of (laughs) ACPA. And Neil Neil Adams is the president, right? So uh, Neil and I have to start talking. And we decide between the two of us, mostly him. This was at a time when they were paying us, I don't know writers maybe 25 30 dollars a page and he kept saying they could pay you 100 a page and still make money and i didn't believe him fully but i did believe yeah i'm sure they're screwing us you know Wow. But how much i don't know but the first thing we we got involved in was the, the return of the original artwork to the artist right which, which the companies didn't want to do but we kept Pestering them as the president and vice president of Acpa, and I kept thinking, "Oh man, I'm I'm going to lose all my work over this." You know, I'm getting them so pissed off. And then the next thing was uh, royalties. Everybody, all of our fellow freelancers said, they, "You'll never get royalties. They'll never pay royalties." They'll never. But eventually they did. It was long after uh, I was done being vice president and Neil was done being president. But we had started, you know, trying to put dents in them. Right. At least to make them think about it, you know? And uh, I I think without us starting that, it it maybe never would have happened.
2: It feels to me like there's so much um, success in other mediums for- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Characters right now, you know, Marvel and DC, especially Marvel though.
0: And it, it feels
2: like if I was If if I was you or if I was, uh, you know, any of the people who you worked with in the 70s and 80s, I'd want a piece of that money. It must be frustrating to see so much money out there when the Avengers are, you know, is the biggest movie on the
1: planet. Yeah. When they started, this is Marvel, when they started offering what they call character equity agreements, uh, they refused to call them contracts, which means they could yank this at any time. And when they did offer them, they said it was only from now on if you created a character for Marvel. And so they gave me a few of these things uh, for whatever characters I was creating at the time. They they instituted it, but Moon Knight had been created to be a villain in Werewolf by Night back. this and I remember a time came when I saw Moon Knight was making all this uh, ancillary revenue for Marvel it was appearing in uh, animated TV shows and in video games and there were action figures and I'm thinking you know this is this just is not right and so I sent an email to Marvel and I said come on give me a character equity agreement for Moon Knight I created Moon Knight and they they wrote back and said, well, yeah, but unfortunately, it was created before we started doing this. And, uh, and so I wrote back and said, basically, so what? Uh, without me, there wouldn't be any Moon night for you to be making all this money. And therefore, you ought to do the right thing. And just said, and they did. Did you do
2: that person to person or did you do it through your lawyer? You just so it was just, it was just yeah. me.
1: Great. Yeah, I mean, you know, once you get to the right guy and say the right thing and make him realize, well, yeah, he's right. I mean, you know, the, the Marvel character equity agreements as such are maybe not as fair as they should be. They're probably not. I don't know. I have no idea what Marvel gets. So how can you say, you know, with DC, it's a, it's a percentage. I mean, it can, it can be crazy, you know. I mean, even though it's a teeny-tiny percentage of what DC gets, if there's enough of it, that teeny-tiny percentage can be, wow, you know, like, holy smoke. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, I have to say that both companies have at least been trying to be more fair than they ever were in the past, which is a real shame when you think about guys like Kirby and Ditko before they could get their due.
0: At least Stan is reaping the rewards, you know. And how. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, if you live long enough, you get justice, I guess. What are you working on now? Oh, man. Uh, You know, Bane SpaghettiOs has uh, freed me of that. I've just turned down three offers. And... After all that output, it is so nice to be doing almost nothing but input now. You know, I'm just, I've been buying books like a maniac ever since I was making money, and now I'm able to read some of these. If you saw my house, you wouldn't believe it.
0: Thank you so much. I have one last question I have to ask. It's not comic related. All right. Uh, Sorry to interrupt you. Did you interview The Who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Who? Which member or members? Uh, It was,
1: I had to meet Roger Daltrey in the, I guess it was the Ramada Inn or something in the, you know, the lounge area. And uh, um, so I go there, and all this, this all this came about because I was living with three girls at the time, and one of them became my first wife, and one of them was a uh, famous groupie, Cynthia Plastercaster. Right, sure. And she wanted me to be the uh, prototype uh, guinea pig for her plaster cast. And no, 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 no. But anyway. Uh, so the phone rings, and I hear this voice asking for Cynthia, and I said, no, she's not in right now, but is this Roger Daltrey? I actually recognize this voice on the phone, and he goes, yeah, and I said, hey, how about I interview you? I'm doing this uh, magazine for a uh, radio station, WLS in Chicago, which was true, and he he, he was kind of reluctant, but he agreed to it, so i'm supposed to meet him in the lounge at the hotel after the concert and so i'm in there i'm looking around for him and all of a sudden this guy starts rubbing my arm and i turn around and it's uh herman from herman's hermits (laughs) (laughs) and herman starts caressing me right and all of a sudden out of nowhere. I hear, leave him alone, Herman, he's with me, and it's Daltrey. And Daltrey says, you are Doug, right? And I said, yeah, because I'm holding this big uh, uh, tape recorder. He could tell who I was. So I interviewed um, him and John Entwistle shit. while uh, Keith Moon was getting plaster casted in the room down the hall. And I only saw Townshend in the elevator. I got in the elevator. Okay, so now after Daltrey and I are having some drinks in the lounge, and then he says, "Okay, meet me up in room and so in in 15 minutes or whatever." So I get in the elevator to go up to the to the room, and as the elevator doors are closing, this guy storms in and it's Township, and he stands in the back of the elevator and he's pounding the elevator with the bottom of his fist, you know, the elevator wall, saying. Shit, fuck. <laughs> and I, the only thing I said to Pete Townshend was, well, it couldn't have been that bad. And he didn't even, he didn't even, he looked at me, you know. And then, shit, fuck, shit, fuck. That's all he said, the whole elevator ride.
0: I really want to thank you for talking about it. It was really fun.
2: Yeah, it was great to talk to you. Thank you so much.
0: Sure. Thanks so much, man. Take, take, take care. care. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. bye. Big thanks to Doug Mensch for being yes. on the show. And for, you know, cursing up a storm. Grown-ass men will be back <laughs> in January with another treat. Two-part. A two-part interview. I think it's going to be... I haven't. We haven't edited it yet. It's going to be, be two awesome. parts. Two-part interview with one of the most popular artists, whoever picked up a pen, Mr. Neil
0: Adams. Oh, it's going to be great.
2: Okay. Happy holidays. We'll see your ass in 2016.
0: And thanks for listening to this whole year of Grown-Ass Men. It's been a pleasure doing podcasts. It has been. All right. Thanks, everybody. Grown Ass Man.